0: Welcome to episode 266 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is retired Major General Greg Martin. Greg is a mental health advocate. He was able to utilize the positive aspects of bipolar disorder to be a strong leader in the U.S. Army, but as the years went by, the disease took over and prohibited his ability to lead, and he was forced to resign. He was able to get correctly diagnosed and find healing and help on his path to recovery through the Department of Veterans Affairs. Today, he is a mental health advocate, a worldwide speaker, and recently he published his first book, Bipolar General. We spent most of this week's discussion talking about his book, why he wrote it, why it's important for veterans to tell their stories and talk about mental health that's so important, and I'm really excited to share his story and i recommend going out and getting his book today but before we get started with the interview i want to remind you that you can listen to women of the military podcast on wreaths across america radio on fridays at 7 p.m eastern and saturdays at 11 a.m eastern and you can listen on iHeartRadio, radio the TuneIn app or odyssey now with that out of the way let's get started with this week's episode Welcome everyone to Women of the Military podcast. I'm really excited to have Greg Martin here today. We connected on LinkedIn and I've been watching all the things that he's been sharing and I'm really excited about his book. I can't wait to read it. It's on my list of books to read, but I batched all my interviews together and I couldn't read all the books at the same time. So by the time this goes live, I should have read it and we'll be able to share a review with everyone. So thanks so much for being here today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So I always like to ask my guests, and I know you're not a woman, but I always like to ask my guests, why did they decide to join the military? So can you tell us why you decided to join the military?
1: Well, I came from a family with a pretty, pretty strong military tradition. My dad and all my uncles had all served in, in some branch of the military. So I just knew I was going to serve someday in some capacity in the U.S. military. Didn't know what, uh, but knew I was going to do it. and. Um, and so then when it came time to go to college, I was doing my research, different colleges, different options, and I found out about the service academies. So um, the academies looked really good to me. And so I applied to them and was accepted at West Point. So I, I took that offer, went to West Point, And then, of course, that led to your first five years in the Army and then a full career.
0: That's so awesome. I love hearing that. And I I think... The military academies are such a great way for people to join the military, a free education. And it's just something that I think not enough people know about. I know they get plenty of applications, but I think that growing up, I didn't know anything about the military and I didn't really know about the academies until after I was in college. And then then I learned about ROTC, which is another great option as well.
1: I was a walk-on to um, Army ROTC when I went to my freshman year in college at University of Maine. Um, I just I looked at um, all the options, all the programs, and decided I was just going to take that as an elective. And it was really good. It was good preparation for me to go to West Point.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you had a long military career. Can you share any of the highlights about what your time in the military was like?
1: Sure, well, first off was West Point. that was an exciting, challenging uh adventure uh with all kinds of really talented, competitive people, and it emphasized not just academics but also leadership, athletics, physical education so that was a great experience that prepared me for going out and being an army leader. Uh, then was Army Ranger School, which was you know huge challenge you know you're Um, food and sleep deprived, extreme challenge. And then um, I went out in the army and first started off as a platoon leader of a combat engineer unit over in Germany during the Cold War. So that was a great mission where we put in obstacles and barriers and uh, protective fighting positions for tanks, infantry, and artillery. So that was a lot of fun. And then was a company commander, then, then got to go to graduate school at MIT, the Army you sent me, and then it just continued on. I mean, got selected to all the schools, uh, Battalion Command, Brigade Command, and then on, on as a general. And um, so it was a great career full of, you know, challenge, excitement, adventure, and personal growth.
0: Yeah, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, and it was quite extensive, and like a lot of different experiences, it sounded like, so many different opportunities. Did you get to go back to West Point and teach? It looked like that was on there.
1: Yes. I I actually went back twice. I went back once as an admissions officer. So your earlier comments about, you know, people knowing about the academies, you know, a big part of what we did was publicity, um, recruiting, public relations for West Point and Army ROTC. So did that for a few years, and then several years later, went back and was an actual instructor where I taught um, American politics, international relations, and national security studies. So had two tours at West Point that were both terrific, really great.
0: That's so awesome. Did you see a lot of changes over the time that you went to West Point, and then you went back your multiple times of how West Point changed?
1: Yes. I think in general, it improved. When I went there, it was still pretty much the old school, the old fashioned, you know, hazing, harassment, negative leadership, yelling at people, uh, bossing them around, which is really out of step with leadership in the modern military and in the army in particular, where, you know, the goal is to have positive leadership, where you inspire people and get them to really want to do the mission, not because they're yelled at or punished or, you know, berated. And so the whole leadership philosophy and style at West Point I think took big steps forward in in a positive direction. Second big thing was um mine was the last all male class and um you know so women came in and you know I think that was good because it, it really made the academy uh, a better place, more representative of America, more representative of the army, where, you know, lots and lots of women serve in, in all ranks. So I think that was a big change. And then the third big change was um, in academics. When I went through, we took an enormous course load. So we were a mile wide and an inch deep in everything. Whereas what they did later was they reduced the number of courses and they made them richer and deeper. And they allowed cadets to pursue a major, um, which had net, was not in the program. When I went there, you just took what they told you. And, but later you, you could major in, you know, whatever you wanted to major in. So there was still a core curriculum of both liberal arts and humanities And math, science, engineering. But once you got that foundation, you could major in anything you wanted. And I think that was a real positive step forward.
0: Yeah, those are big changes and really interesting to hear about the history, especially because you were there before women. You were there while there were women, but you were the last class of all males. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool to see and to hear about what it was like to go back. So you're on the podcast because you are promoting your book, Bipolar General. And so can you tell us a little bit about your mental health story? Cause I saw on LinkedIn also that you've been an advocate for mental health for more than the years that you've been out of the military. So how did that all happen?
1: Okay, so this is, it's a little bit involved but I'll try to be concise. Unknown to me, I was born with a bipolar brain. So I had the genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder. And bipolar disorder is not like an on off switch. You don't suddenly not have bipolar and then somebody flips a switch and you do have it. It's a gradual rise up the bipolar spectrum. And so starting in my teenage years, I had a condition called hyperthymia, which is a a near continuous level of mild mania. And it increased year after year, decade after decade, until when I was, and what that did for me is that my brain created and, and distributed excess amounts of powerful chemicals like dopamine, endorphins and others that gave me you know, way above average energy, drive, enthusiasm, problem solving skills, positivity and the like. But by the time I got to age 47, I was a brigade commander in charge of thousands of troops. I was a full colonel in the army. I was very close to my onset of bipolar disorder. I was really just a tiny bit below actually having real bipolar disorder. And what happened was when I went to um, combat in Iraq, the intense stress, pressure, thrill, euphoria of leading troops in combat... It it, it triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder. So, I actually in 2003 went into real bipolar disorder. And when we attacked from Kuwait to Iraq, I basically went into mania, which is a super high elevated levels of energy and so forth. I felt like Superman, felt bulletproof. My brain was working the best it had ever worked. I was making, you know, routinely um, very complicated rapid decisions under fire you know that were life and death decisions and so the mania actually boosted and enhanced my performance for the year in iraq but when we came home to germany then i fell into depression where my brain then instead of uh producing and distributing more excess amounts of chemicals it distributed and produced less which drove me into depression and so then for the next 12 years I went into higher levels of mania, deeper levels of depression until by 2014, 12 years later, after Iraq, 12 years later, my basically I burst into full blown mania where I was in a state of madness, insanity, completely over the top. You know, believed I was the smartest person in the world, held the key to world peace, you know, had had um, hallucinations that I saw the Holy Spirit come down demons attacking our house that I could fly. Um, And I became more and more out of control, reckless, irresponsible, over the top. And it got so bad that finally, um, and again, my bipolar disorder had been unknown, undiagnosed, unrecognized. But finally then people started to recognize it. Everybody did, my students, faculty, um, administration, my wife, my son. And so the, the people at the National Defense University started writing um, anonymous letters to my boss, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, saying, hey, this General Martin's lost it. He's gone completely crazy. And so the chairman called me in and said, look, you've done an unbelievable job. I love you like a brother. I, you have until 5 p.m. today to resign or I'll fire you. And I'm ordering you to get a psychiatric evaluation. And you would think I would be disappointed, but I wasn't. I said, thank you, sir. This is great news. God put me here to do big things. He's going to put me somewhere else to do even bigger things. And now, nine years later, from 2014 to today, I think I was right that I actually am doing bigger things with my bipolar mission. But from there, I spiraled and crashed in a hopeless depression, terrifying psychosis, which is hallucinations, delusions. I finally got diagnosed properly with uh, bipolar disorder. And then I went from bad to worse, went into two years of bipolar hell. So I was fired, retired, and then I was hospitalized with the VA after I retired. And then the VA helped me. They, they I was inpatient for a while, then they got me on the right medication, which was lithium for me. And um, that was over seven years ago. And within a week of taking lithium, my bipolar symptoms pretty much vanished. And I've been on a journey of recovery for the last seven plus years and moved to Florida for the warmth, the sunshine, the brightness. And I've rebuilt my life, came up with my life mission, which is sharing my bipolar story to help stop the stigma, promote recovery and save lives. And then gotten into, I do, the way I do that mission is through speaking, writing and conferring. So, Life is good. I'm helping thousands of people. And I'm really grateful for where I'm at.
0: That's so great to hear. And uh, I really loved hearing your journey of, you know, the part where you weren't diagnosed, but there was something wrong, and then it how it accumulated and built. And then that you were able to get help from the VA because so many veterans have a negative stigma towards the VA sometimes. And so it's great to hear that you were able to get help and treatment and and that you're on your way to recover, or you're on the road to recovery. It's a continual process. I'm, I have post traumatic stress from my deployment, and I understand that it's it's not just a like book is closed where everything's good. It's a continual process of, of growing and and working to, you know, find healings
1: yeah absolutely. And it, like you said it's a um it's a lifelong journey because the bipolar disorder never goes away. It's always in my brain. so I have to manage it like you would a chronic illness, um, which it really is it's a it's a chronic illness of the brain inside the brain, the cells and wiring.
0: yeah, I have to use meditation as one of like the tools that I use and I can feel like certain things in my body when I'm starting to get overstressed or in different situations and those are cues that either i need to you know use the meditation more or you know do other uh life management things and so that that makes a lot of sense to me because yeah it's a continual journey right so you've been doing advocacy And you are you're doing great right now and you have everything under control. What made you this besides that you want to share with people, but what made you decide that you should go from speaking? I mean you're still speaking, but to writing a book. Why did you decide to write a book?
1: Well, back when I first got diagnosed, which was in 2014, I said it was a traumatic experience. I mean, I was in horrible depression. I was, you know, terrifying psychosis. And I said, you know. Everybody talks about a stigma. I don't feel a stigma. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. This is physically real. It's it's not because I lack character or willpower. It's, it's biological. So why should there be a stigma? I said, you know, someday I'm going to do something about that and I'm going to talk about it. But of course, I wasn't in any shape to speak or write at all until I got on lithium. And then it took me a couple, two, three years to really get back on my feet, kind of rebuild my life start getting an azimuth for, you know, what I wanted to do. And it just came to me, you know, I should tell my story. And you know, I can really, I've I've had a horrible experience that was, you know, large, much of it was a nightmare. And, but I lived through it. Thanks to my wife, my family, the medical professionals, my friends, through, you know, to God, um, you know, I came through this. So I owe it to other people, just like any other military person would do, y- you back brief people, you know, you share your lessons learned, your after action review. You tell people, Hey, here's what happened. Here's why it happened. Here's what I learned. Here's what you can apply. I just said, Hey, that's just part of being a good soldier, being a good leader. And so that's what really did it for me. And, and then the writing part came, it was, it was really weird. Um, My mother passed away uh, back about during COVID about three years ago. And when she died, I just got this jolt of energy to write and to tell my story. And so I sat at the keyboard and I typed every day for a year until I had it done. And it was, it was about 650 pages, in, which is way too long for a book. But, it, but I got it done. I shared it with people. I got feedback, refined it, edited it. And then the next big step was, once I got it written, was finding an editor in, or a publisher and that took about a year and a half before I finally found one. I found the U.S. Naval Institute Press in Annapolis, Maryland, who are terrific, and the Association of the U.S. Army, who have a book program. And both of them, I sent them my manuscript. They loved it and said, we want to publish this. This is great. And so then once I had a publisher, it took a year for the book to get published. And it just came out in September a couple of months ago. And, uh, and we're off and running. The book is doing really, really well. Lots of excitement. You know, it's selling very quickly um, and getting, you know, really rave reviews.
0: Yeah, I loved how you talked about the book writing process and the book publishing process because it is such a, you know, it takes so much time and then, like, even after you've written it and then you get reviews and then you get a publisher and then there's more reviews and like there's so much work that goes into having a book published so I, I understand the time frame and all the hard work and so it's so great to hear like after all that hard work, all that time waiting that it's that's the response has been so great and that you have you know and that it's out there in the world so that people can read it.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, I appreciate that. Um, you know, once I got the mission to to tell my story and to write, then I was focused like a laser beam, which was what a good military leader does. You focus on your mission and taking care of your troops, but you focus on the mission just you know ruthlessly. And that's what I've done for the last few years. And I've totally enjoyed it and loved it. It's been really rewarding and fulfilling. And the feedback from, you know, all over the world really has been just amazing. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I've been invited to be keynote speaker at all kinds of events. You know, hospitals, med schools, medical associations, Fortune 500 companies, military. But h- this is one I love. Medical schools are asking me to speak to all their med students and doctors. And there's one fantastic uh, med school professor named Alex Liao At University of Illinois in Chicago, she has actually invited me to speak to her class a couple times and is using the book to teach psychiatry and mental illness and bipolar disorder to her up and coming psychiatrists. So, I mean, it's really, really rewarding how how much the book is appreciated.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to hear other people's stories about mental health challenges. I read a book about someone's experience of PTSD and she was talking about how there's this voice and all the things that it was saying to her. And I was like, oh, that's what happens to me. But I didn't like understand it until I read her story. And then I realized like how much her story related to my story. And she was able to put you know, my mental health struggle into words because she wrote a book and it's helped me in understanding like my mental health journey. So it makes a lot of sense that they would use your book as a case study to like help understand what it's like, because I think sometimes you hear things like PTSD and depression and you don't really understand what it is until you're going through it. And when you can hear someone else's story, your story won't be exactly the same, but there'll be pieces of it that you can relate to and it can help you understand and find tools for healing.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the other cool things is I've also gotten a lot of interest from overseas. Uh, This week, I'm giving a talk to um, uh, bipolar in the United Kingdom, so out of you know England, Scotland, giving a talk to to a group of uh, med, medical people in Australia. Then this is this is really cool, uh, Canada, Mexico. But I got invited to be the keynote speaker at at the World Bipolar Congress in Brazil, and they're going to translate the book into Portuguese. And and so th- then I've been invited to speak in um, uh, Liberia and Kenya, over in Africa. So it's, it's really going global.
0: Yeah, that's so awesome that you can help not only people in the United States, but across the world. That's really cool that it has. I mean, it's a human story, so it applies to everyone. And it's a topic that not very many people are writing about. I've heard a lot about PTSD, but not about bipolar. So it's really interesting. And it sounds like it's something that it's probably more prevalent in the military that people don't really understand because you get that like extra energy and that drive to, you know, be a good leader and do the things that the military is asking for. So have you seen that as something that's been recognized in the military community or is that something that maybe I'm rambling?
1: So as far as bipolar disorder in the military, um, the it's a lot higher than most people think or realize. And I think that people who think about this subject and are well-informed and educated would agree with me. Now, how high of a level, I don't know, but I'll just give you a few statistics. People with bipolar disorder is about 4%, so 4%. I read a statistic from the National Institute of Mental Health that 25% of veterans have bipolar disorder. So think about that for a second. 4% national average, 25% of veterans. So what does that tell you about what the population of the military is? And the other thing, just to think about just quickly, is the population that come into the military, I think are very prone and susceptible to bipolar disorder. And here's why. The age of onset is typically 18 to 25. Well, that's exactly when people come in the military. The second thing is the kind of people the military wants. They want people with drive, energy, enthusiasm, um, you know, uh, hard chargers. Well, those are many of the traits that are in, embedded in people with bipolar disorder. You have to have the genetic predisposition and the trigger. Well, the trigger is typically something that's intense stress, pressure, something like that. Well, the minute people come in the military, they're... they're um, subjected to intense stress and pressure. So the triggering is probably going to happen. And then the longer they stay in, the more of the pressure with deployments and wars and, and so on and so forth. So I think that there's probably a very, very good chance that the level of people with bipolar disorder in the military is quite a bit higher than the national average.
0: Yeah, especially if it's higher in veterans. I mean, it it makes so much sense. Just hearing your story hearing what type of people the military you know looks for and the stress like you going to Iraq really pushed you into you know you had it you had the extra energy all your life and then you went to Iraq and all that stress and I mean deployments are stressful the military is stressful and so that makes a lot of sense
1: yeah, it it really is. You know, speaking of that, um there's a endorsement in my book by General Joe Votel, who's the commander of US Special Operations Command, you know, all the SEALs, Rangers, Green Berets, Delta, all that. And um and he called bipolar disorder a signature injury of the post 9/11 wars. And basically, you know, what he's saying is that lots of people in the special ops community have an onset, they have bipolar disorder the mania generally helps them perform. It boosts their level of performance. And a lot of times having that mania, you know, the upside of bipolar disorder, it helps people that are living on the edge in these super dangerous, risky missions that the special ops people do.
0: Yeah, for sure. It sounds like there's so much more that the military needs to look into with mental health. I know there's been like a big focus on post-traumatic stress, but it sounds like Even some of the PTSD stuff could be more in the bipolar arena and people just aren't recognizing it because there's just because of the way that, you know, the focus has been in an area that maybe it should be tweaked to the other side.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: That sounds really... Really interesting. I'm really excited to read your book and to learn more about your story. Is there anything else either from your time in the military or through your experience in mental health that you wanted to talk about before I ask my last question?
1: I think as far as my time in the military, first off, focus on your mission, you know, really focus relentlessly on the mission, on how to get it done, think creatively, work as a team, all that kind of stuff. And simultaneously take really good care of your people. I mean, really look out for your people, you know, help them get into schools, help them, you know, with their promotions, help them with the administrative, you know, help them get their medical stuff taken care of, look out for their families, be sensitive to uh, service members who have family issues and family problems and they need help, and maybe their kids need special medical attention. But those are all things that the leader can and, and really must do. As far as mental health, I would say a couple things. Number one, mental illness and other mental conditions are real. They are physiologically real. They're biologically legitimate. They're 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 um they're things that are happening inside the wiring and the cells of the brain so it's invisible you can't see it like you can see a broken arm but there's things that are you know malfunctioning inside the cells of the brain and it's physically real just like diabetes cancer heart disease are physically real and you know there's no stigma against somebody with you know diabetes nobody says oh it's cuz you're not trying or cuz you have lack of character or you don't have willpower it's acknowledged that it's a physical thing and so there is no stigma and it should be the same thing with mental challenges with mental illness with with everything else with all that stuff there shouldn't be any stigma and the stigma is so um uh bad because it's the biggest deterrent to people going and getting help that's the biggest barrier to people going and getting help and getting help is critical because basically people have two choices if they have something wrong like a mental illness like i did uh, or do i do have a mental illness in my brain you can do nothing your family, your career, your finances, it then will probably lead to addictions, homelessness, incarcerations, and death. So, I mean, that's a terrible, terrible outcome. But the other alternative is to say, I'm going to go get help. And either you go yourself or if, if, you know, maybe your friends and buddies, your battle buddies, your peers can persuade you to go get help. Because if you go get help for these brain conditions, the chances are very, very good that you can live a very happy, healthy, purposeful life. So the choice is really ours. Are we gonna get get help and be healthy, or are we not going to get help and and probably get destroyed and end up dead? And so I think those are a few of the key things um, that and and we get a, we have to normalize the conversation. I mean, you know, mental health should not be, stigmatized. It shouldn't be a taboo topic. It should be, you should be able to talk about mental health, mental illness, brain issues, just as much as you talk about physical fitness, physical health, you know, and stuff like that. So those are my main points.
0: I think it's so important to talk about getting help because before I got help with my mental challenges, I just kept spiraling deeper and deeper and deeper. And when I I think when I finally went to get help, it was out of desperation. But also, I thought that this was just my life and there was nothing that I could do to make it better. And then I went and got help. And it was like night and day. Like now there's hope. Now I have tools. Now I know what to do in different situations. And before I would just spiral out of control. And it was really... Hopeless and and I did really thought that there was nothing I could do and so I it's so important that we make it not stigmatized and that people do go and get help and know that there is healing on the other side. It's going to take hard work and it might be you said it was nightmare to go through that healing and I my challenge of going through the help that I needed to get better was a lot of hard work and it was not easy but now. You know, years later, I'm in such a better place. And at that time, I didn't think I could ever be in a healthy place. It was just it was so dark. So I really agree.
1: Well, Amanda, great job, you know, dealing with it and rebuilding your life. I mean, really proud of you. Way to go. You're a great example.
0: Yeah, yeah It. Was, I mean, it was really scary how hard it was to, like, get help, even though I really knew I needed help. But you're right. There's a stigma behind getting help it was like I can do this on my own especially the military taught me I can do this by myself and I couldn't get better without help and so yeah it's so important so I really love this conversation and I love talking about mental health because it's been a huge impact on my life and so I'm really thankful for the work that you're doing but I always like to end the interview with what advice would you give to someone who's considering joining the military
1: I would say know why you're going into the military, what, you know, what is your purpose? Um, And and it's important to know what your own purpose and goals and and, uh, your individual um, objectives are, because the military is a huge organization that it's gonna, in a way, swallow you up. And the military has its purpose, its objectives, its mission, and you're going to be a relatively small piece of a you know worldwide organization. So once you get in the military, you are go- you're going to need to um, do the best you can. You know, do your best always at whatever you know the mission is. You know, always do the right thing. You know, integrity, character, values, and then treat people. Um, the way you want to be treated or, you know, live by the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you can kind of keep those three things in, in, in um, alignment and focus on the big organization's mission, you're going to be a good service member, soldier, sailor, airman, Marine, coast guardsman. You're going to be good. You're going to do a good job and you're going to move forward. But, it's always important to keep, you know, in your mind, why did you join? What did you want to get out of this? Because you want to come out of the military, not just accomplishing what the military wants, but you want to achieve your own personal goals. Like maybe, you know, one of your goals is to you know really further your education. Then, you know, go ahead and do it. I mean, the military has phenomenal educational programs in d- different ways you can get college degree or, you know, you can go to uh, graduate school, or you can get more training. It may be your big goal is you really want to travel and live in some overseas places. Well, I mean, you know, the military has people stationed in Spain, Italy, Germany, England, Holland, Belgium, Japan, Korea, uh, and, and, and on and on and on. I mean, we're all over the world. So it's a chance to deploy. And then think about what you want to do. Do you, you know, do you want to be a fighter pilot? Okay. You know, go for it. Do you want to be an infantryman? You know, go for it. Special forces go for it. Maybe you want to be a a computer satellite communication expert and you get cutting edge technology that's applicable to the outside world, then go for it. I mean, the world, you know, the sky is the limit in the U S military. It has like everything, and so that's why I'm saying, you know, do the big picture stuff and be a good, be a good um, soldier, airman, sailor, marine, but know your particular niche that you want to accomplish during the time that you're serving in the U.S. military.
0: Yeah, I started my book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, focused exactly on that. You got to focus on your why because the military, they'll find something for you to do. But if you have your why and you know what you want to do, it'll help set you up for success throughout your military career and then after. Yes, well said. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for sharing your story, for writing your book and for all that you're doing to advocate for mental health. I really appreciate everything you're doing.
1: Totally my pleasure, Amanda. And thanks for your leadership and what you're doing, your own journey and this podcast. Thank you.